0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my beautiful wife, Janet, and our producers, uh, Stephanie, today. And we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio, as we do every Monday, 1230 to 130, right here on the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Facebook page and my personal Facebook page. As always, you can call in and ask questions, 509 537 zero four one one and even if you do not call in live that direct that forwards directly to my cell phone and I will answer your call so please don't be afraid to call after hours either. Um uh, and today we have a very special guest on again she shared the first part of her story her weight loss journey her health journey last week um Lori powell and now she's going to talk about addiction and recovery her story there it's a great story addiction has touched so many people and um i know about a year ago we had two or two or three different individuals on our show um, and they talked about recovery being the uh, make recovery the epidemic and um that's really where we need to go. Just educate people about addiction and recovery. So Lori, without further ado, welcome back to our show.
1: Thank you, Sean. And it's good to see you again. Finally yeah. see you. Last week yeah. I huh, had some issues. I'm computer, uh, what, is, what do I want to say, challenged. So so grateful you actually get to see me this time. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, so I am too.
0: And I'm glad our listeners and viewers will be able to see you. Now, I will say that that was totally on my part. It was my issue last week. It was not your technology challenge. It was my technology challenge. So I'm glad we got it fixed this week. So um, yes. welcome to our show.
1: Glad we can see your you. shiny face. Thank you so very much. I still so appreciate that. And I do, I will take half the responsibility because I just don't know how to do Chrome or Google or somebody <laughs> or whatever. So hey, thanks so much for joining us. And I love what you just shared about let's make recovery an epidemic or a pandemic or let's just yeah. let's just change the tide of where we're going with with our country and our nation. And and I just wanna share, you know, my story is probably not unique. I don't believe it's unique. I believe that those of us that struggle with addiction have a lot of the same underlying issues which I believe are family of, of origin you know uh, issues. I, I come from a family of alcoholics and drug addicts. Um, it's completely throughout my entire family. My father's alcoholic, my mother was an addict. my grandparents were addicted to, drugs in one form or another to alcohol. I had an aunt go to prison for manufacturing drugs about seven times. So I have a lot of family history. So I don't come by it. It's not just something I woke up one day and went, oh, I think I want to be an addict. It's just, I believe it was something that I, that I really believe it's genetic for me. And I believe that addiction is genetic. That's at least my belief and my opinion and my philosophy and the way I was taught. But you know, at an early, early age, my my dad would give us drinks of his beer. He thought it would be pretty cute to say, "Hey, go get me a beer and bring it to me from the fridge." And we'd go in, toddle in, and grab it, and come back and say, "Can I have a sip?" And he'd be like, "Sure." And and so back then, it was just kind of like I don't think anybody really thought anything of it. I don't think that parents really, or my dad really thought it through that hey, I might be contributing to something that I shouldn't be doing. And my dad um, ended up being an alcoholic and. You know, I think some of that was in our home. It was acceptable to drink as much as he did because you just you didn't say anything. It's kind of like that elephant in the living room. You know, there's a problem. Somebody has an issue, but you don't say anything to anybody. Right. You just pretend like it's not happening. But at a very early age, being able to drink in front of my dad. And then as I got older, as an adolescent, you know, my parents was okay for me to smoke. It was okay for me to drink at home. Um, and I don't think that they thought that it was a really a bad idea. They, they thought it was, hey, have you drink at home? That way you're not going out getting in trouble or having issues with, you know, you know, being picked up by the police. Let's have you just do it here in the home. And I thought for the longest time that that was, my parents were pretty darn cool. Well, <laughs> and, and they were, they were really cool parents because everybody wanted to come to my house because it was okay to do those things. And, right. and uh, again, I don't think that it was intentional that my folks ever thought that it would take me down the path that it took me down. And I think when I entered junior high school, that's when I started to use illegal drugs. And, and, um, you know, I look back at that when I was 12 years old and I was Standing outside of my junior high smoking marijuana, thinking, ooh, big bad drug, you know, I shouldn't be doing this, but everybody else was, so I'm gonna join them. And it was easy to for me to justify that because if my parents let me drink, this shouldn't be that bad, because you know, it's just an herb. So it's kind of that philosophy. Again, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But what happened for me is is smoking cigarettes at twelve years old, smoking marijuana and having alcohol, you know, exposed to alcoholism early in my life and, and being able to drink in my in my home kind of open that door for that continuation of that behavior. And I remember probably uh, probably about between the ages of 13, 14, 15, started using other drugs, heavier drugs, and then started sneaking out, staying out all night, you know, having a hard time getting to school and, and just really having problems in my home life because drinking and using were more important than following the rules at home and going to school and being a good student. And my mom finally had had enough. I have a I have two younger sisters. One is two years younger than me. And I have a sister who's 15 years younger than me. So about the age of 15, 16, I started to really rebel and started to get in a lot of trouble. And my mom just finally put her foot down and said, I can't have you continue to come home or not come home or be using drugs. I just can't, I can't do this because you're exposing this to the other girls, the other my other children. So you need to go. And I was kicked out of the house. And it was like, now, what do I do? And I was in high school at the time. I think I was a junior in high school. my mom said, "I'm done. I can't deal with this." and I fought with my mom like we fought like cats and dogs and you know my uh, my father moved out when I was thirteen moved he moved uh, to another city just down the street to Dayton Washington beautiful little community. My mom and I my mom raised my sister and I in Walla Walla. all three of us were raised in Walla Walla. My other sisters. And then my mom married another alcoholic after her and my dad divorced because he was alcoholic. So she married another one and had another child, but that's another story for maybe another day, but it's also part of my recovery story as well. Um, So I believe, like I said, 14, 15, 16 started giving into heavier drugs. My mom's like, I'm done. I can't deal with you. Kicks me out of the house. I'm still in high school. I move into, I move in with my boyfriend and I'm going, to, I'm going to high school, and I'm surprised I actually was able to graduate because I probably missed more school than I attended. But I also worked uh, when I was in high school. In my junior, senior year, I was able to get a job. I went to school part-time, worked part-time, and was able to support myself per se. Lived with a, with a boyfriend. And after I graduated high school, didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just had no ambition. I just thought, well, I'm just gonna excuse, I'm just gonna tell you, I'm just gonna sell drugs. That's what that's what my lifestyle was gonna be. I was gonna sell drugs and I was just gonna live this vagabond lifestyle and live with my boyfriend and we're gonna figure it out as we go. And and him and I didn't last very much longer. We got um, when we would drink, we would Become physically violent with each other, which was terrible. I look back and go, I can't believe I did that stuff. Why would I hurt somebody that I thought I cared about? But it was only under the influence I would do those crazy behaviors. And by the age of 21, I was literally homeless. I um, had been uh, living—you know—I would couch surf. I would stay with friends. I'd let people would let me come and stay at their house. I I had a hard time keeping a job. And then I met my—he became my first husband. His name was Dan. Um, I met him and he and I then moved in together. Of course I was not, um, I wasn't following any real good protocols in my life. I was just kind of living however I wanted to live. I, um, just didn't, didn't really have a moral compass, I guess you could say at the time. Um, and him and I lived together for several years and kind of went down that path with him of continuing to use drugs and alcohol and then became, you know, continue to sell drugs and had restaurant jobs and made jobs and just couldn't really keep it. I got fired from all my jobs. And at the end of my my uh, my using my addiction, Dan had said, you know, hey, I'm going to go to treatment and I'm going to get well because I can't keep living this way. And I was terrified because I thought, if he leaves, where am I going to go? Because he'd been the person who'd been supporting me. I'd been living with him for about three years. And he was working a full-time job. And I was trying to keep a job, which I couldn't. And he went to treatment. He said, I'm done. I can't. I'm, I'm out. I just can't keep doing this. So he ended up going to treatment. And I could not and wasn't ready to stop using. I continued that lifestyle. He came home from treatment, had met a young lady in treatment, married her. And I wasn't ready at all to quit. And about nine months later, I ran into him again. And she, his wife, had gone back out to drinking and couldn't stay sober. And he and I picked up again where we'd left off, but he was in recovery. He had stopped using. When he got out of treatment, he didn't go back to using. And he just kept telling me for probably two or three months, listen, I, I want you to get help. I really love you. I care about you. Have a, You have a disease. You need help. And I finally one day heard him say, I love you. You need help. I want you to get well. And I woke up one day and I ended up walking into, uh, I woke up, walked myself down to the welfare office. This is a long, long, long time ago. I should probably preface this. This This was before dirt. So a long time ago, what you did is you went to the welfare office and you signed up for a program called ADOTSA. And I can't remember what it stood for. But I just knew that if I signed up for that program, they would stay me. They would pay me to stay clean. They would pay me $300 a month to stay clean. And I thought, well, might as well give it a shot. But at the end of my addiction, I had gotten to a place where I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Who I saw looking back at me was somebody I didn't recognize. I was under 100 pounds. I'm only 5'4". That's not very much weight, but that's I'm pretty short. But I'm still, that's a really skinny. I looked yeah. like I was on the Scarface diet, which I was. And I just remember the things that I had told myself I would never do. And I was doing those things. Like I was going to the bar at three o'clock in the afternoon. I was drinking before noon. I mean, I mean, just kept setting all these parameters of what I wouldn't do, what I wouldn't do. And I started doing all of them. And that was when I realized that something had to change. And that was also the same time Dan was telling me you needed help. So I ended up going down to the welfare office, signing up for the ADOTSA program. Two months later, I walked into a treatment center. Mind you, I didn't have any legal issues. I was never arrested. I never had any health problems that I could see. I mean, I was super skinny and looked like a skeleton and I had crossbones in my eyes because I wasn't there, but I didn't have any legal, I had no medical, I didn't have any issues that were visible. Nobody made me go to treatment. It was something that I realized when I woke up that day, I was just like, something's got to change. Something has to change because I can't keep living this way. I didn't like who I had become. I didn't like the fact that I violated violate every moral character, every in my integrity, my oh my gosh, all the stuff that I was doing that I said I wouldn't do. And I walked into that treatment facility and I was terrified. And the things that I really take that I want to take you to take away from this and so what I want to share with with everybody who's watching is, you know, not everybody ends up like I ended up. Not everybody ends up homeless. Not everybody ends up on the street. Not everybody ends up with medical or legal problems. That's just part of my story. My story was I ended up homeless, couch surfing, not having a place to call home, not having a job. I lived out of a backpack. I relied on other people for all of my needs, food, clothing, shelter. I had none of that. And I had people in my life that were willing to help me with that, or should I say, they gave me those things in exchange for other things, favors that I could do for them. And so when I got to treatment, one of the things that, things that really stood out to me that I heard over and over again was you're gonna have to change one thing and that's everything. And that to me, scared me to death. But, But the cool thing about that was I knew it was possible. And I had sat in these rooms. When I went to treatment, they said these very specific things like one in five, you know, one in one in thirty five of you will stay clean and sober for five years. And I just remember literally and this was these were some terminologies that I used back in the day was I looked up at the sky because we were outside for we were outside doing doing our therapy session. I just remember looking up, even though I wasn't a believer, I remember looking up and going, God, I want to be that one. Jesus, I want to be that one. Please, Lord, let me be the one that stays clean and sober for five years. Because those were the statistics back then. I went to treatment in May of 1988. That's a long time ago. Remember, I told you I got clean before dirt. So in May of 1988, sitting outside in Vancouver, Washington, at this little treatment center, telling God, I want to be that one. I want to be that one to stay clean for five years. I set a goal and didn't even realize that I had done that. And when they told me you're going to have to change one thing, just one thing, you have to change one thing. And that was everything. They said things like the friends you you keep, the places you go, the things you do, all of that has to change. And I thought, that's a big, tall order. And I just really grabbed onto the idea that it was going to take a lot of effort to stay clean. And then I knew when I got home back to Walla Walla that I was going to have to do some very simple things. And those simple things were, I was going to have to go to recovery meetings. I was going to have to have a sponsor, which they talked about heavily in the treatment program I was in. They talked about doing step work, the 12 steps of a recovery program. And I was so terrified that I was willing to do whatever it took. Because when I walked into that facility, like I shared with you, I didn't know who I was because who I had become was not who I know God intended me to be. I was not the person, I was a shell of a person that had walked into that facility trying to figure out who was I really and will I really like who I am when I stop using and drinking and who am I really? Because for most of my my adolescence from the age of 12 to 23, almost 24 years old, I drank drank alcohol, used drugs and tried to avoid who I was or how I felt. Right. And so getting out of treatment was the most terrifying thing I did was when I walked out of those doors, that 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 21-day treatment program, that all those walls of safety and comfort were now gone. What I did do was what they suggested when I got home. And that was go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the 12 steps of recovery. And I did that to the best of my ability. And when I went home, I went back to Dan's house. He had gone to treatment as I shared with you nine months before I did. And he had stayed clean and sober, and he helped me kind of get back in on track with that. And what was really amazing was I did those things when they said, these are the things you're going to have to do. You're going to have to change one thing, and that was everything. So I changed literally everything about my life, changed the people I hung around with. I even changed the music I listened to, the, the places that I went. Just everything about my life changed. Um, I got very actively involved in our 12-step community, got involved, very actively involved with sponsorship, had a sponsor that I talked to every day, three or four times a day. And, you know, I got so involved with that community that I just felt like I was in the middle again of a safe environment. And I had the tools that I needed to surround me to stay in recovery. And I'm going to share just a little brief story about Dan. Dan was my first husband, and when I had 55 days clean and sober, I'll say those words clean and and sober in recovery, he was diagnosed with malignant melanoma skin cancer, and at the time, I didn't know exactly what that meant, and here we are. We're talking 1988, right, 88, 89, and this is, like I said, a long time ago, before dirt. And, I, and they had shared with us, that, oh, he's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. We caught it. It's not a big deal. We went through the surgery. And and they said, you know, if it comes back, if it comes back, it'll come back in these other places, like your brain or his lungs or his brain, not mine. It'll come back in his brain or his lungs. or. And I kind of was worried about that. But they kind of reassured me. And I had I had people that surrounded me during that time and said, you know, we're going to get through this. You're not going to get hot. You're not going to go back. You're going to stay clean through this. And Lo and behold, he went through the surgery, went through the recovery, and we both stayed clean and sober. So that was a miracle and a win. And I decided that about two years clean that I, I wanted to, to do something with my life when I grew up. I thought, what do I want to do with my life? How, where, you know, What do I want to do for a living? Because remember, when I was out there in active addiction using drugs and alcohol, I wasn't employable. I could not show up. I didn't know what day I would sleep or what day I would wake up or anything about whether I was coming or going. So I had gotten a little job at a rest at a, uh, um, at a little grocery store around the block from where we were living. And I decided I was going to go back to college because I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to, I wanted to have purpose. And a little before I had two years clean, I had did, done some interviews with some people that I thought, well, maybe I want to be a counselor. Maybe I want to be a drug and alcohol counselor when I grow up. Because by golly, if I can get clean and sober, so can someone else. If I can go through what I went through, I know other people can too. And I interviewed a friend of mine who was a counselor and I thought, man, that sounds like a great job. I also thought about going into um, working with developmentally disabled p- people because I loved that. I did that in high school and I shared with you that I was working part time when I was in high school. That's what I did. I worked at a um, facility that catered to and employed developmentally disabled people. And I loved it. They were the m- most wonderful people on the planet to work with but I decided to go into chemical dependency because that was something that was so near and dear to me. Mm-hmm. And at about two years clean, because back in the day you had to have two years in recovery before you could work in the in the field. So I went and I moved to Vancouver, moved back to Vancouver, Washington, and went through a training program that took a year. Got educated, They did it. we did all the classes. I actually did on, I mean, I worked and went to school all at the same time for an entire year. And during that year, Dan had another relapse with his cancer, it had come back. And I was a little more upset and a little more scared this time because we weren't quite sure what that was going to mean. And when I left the training program in August of 1991, is that correct? 88, 89, 90, at yeah, 91, we decided we were going to get married. So we got married and it was kind of like a shotgun wedding. And it really was, there really was no need for a shotgun, right? Because I wasn't pregnant, but What I did do is I did, we did say, let's get married because I wanted, I wanted to spend my life with him because of all the things that we had gone through. We had gotten married in September of 1991 and his cancer had come back that August. So that September we were married and I was a little apprehensive about it, but I thought, you know what? It's going to be fine. He's going to be great. And then that following year in February of 92, he actually had another relapse of cancer and he had come back with a vengeance in this bone and his and his brain or his lungs, his spine, it had come back in multiple places. And by the end of October of 1992, he was, he had passed and I, I had, just over a little over four years clean. And I just, I surrounded myself again. And remember the whole time I'm going through all of this stuff, I am just in the middle of recovery, in the middle of this community of people that loved me and supported me and cared about me. And I continue to reach out to those people. And I did everything that I was encouraged to do about how not to go back to numbing my feelings. How do I walk through these feelings of loss and not? use drugs and alcohol. How do I do this? And I spent a lot of time in grief. I've been spent some time in grief therapy. I did some things that people said, don't do like right after Dan passed away. They said, you know, don't make any other major life changes. This is like the one thing you don't, you want to just stay put, don't do it. Well, do you think I listened? Eh, Not this time. I changed jobs. I moved to a new community. I got rid of my dog. I sold my car. I mean, everything in my life changed all the major life changes you can make. I did that. Please listeners at home, don't do what I did because it was crazy. Um, I didn't, I didn't quite realize that what I was doing was I was compounding the grief. Every time I made a change, I compounded the grief and compounded it every single time I made another change. But what I did was I still continued to be very focused on recovery and in the community of people in recovery. And, um, you know, I, I did the things that, like I said, they said don't do. It. I got into multiple relationships right after Dan passed away, thinking, I got to find this dead guy somewhere. And that actually, you know, that never panned out. Right. Um, but in 1993, I did meet my current husband, Rod, and um, we have been married. I was at 22 or 23 years now, and both of us, I met him in recovery, and I, this year celebrated 33 years of recovery. I haven't had to go back to drugs or alcohol in order to live or feel my feelings. I shared in our last podcast with my weight journey and my weight loss journey, I used food for some of those things. I love to shop. You know, those are things that I used instead of the drugs and alcohol. I decided I could destroy my life in other ways, like eating too much, maybe spending too much money. But those are things that I could also, again, learn to learn those coping mechanisms and learn how to, um, you know, I don't want to say stop those behaviors, but I did. I do know today that my feelings won't kill me. My feelings will not kill me. Sometimes I think they will, but I have to remind myself feelings won't kill me but I know drugs and alcohol will so I tell people when you're when you're facing adversity and you're facing the biggest struggle of your life turning to things that are going to uh, help you avoid those feelings isn't always the best thing to do and I believe that you can eat grief and you can eat life and only by eating an ele- like it's like eating an elephant you can only do it like one bite at a time And I believe that I have a great God in my life who only allowed me to have as much pain as I could process at the time. And he put people in my path. Every time I needed something, he always put somebody in my path to help me through that process. And so again, I think I've shared pretty much a lot of what my, my, the the little bullet points I have written down, I kind of even went into a little more about the, the, the cancer with Dan, but, um, I don't know that there's really. I am still really actively involved in my my recovery community. I attend twelve step meetings, um, not as regularly as I used to. I still am involved in sponsorship, and I just love love helping people. So, wow! What what an incredible story, Lori, and
0: congratulations on thirty three years. That's 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 amazing. Thank you. Um, and Janet, do you have any stories for, or do you have any questions for Lori? Well, Lori, I I know that we talked about your food journey too, but I think it's very common, isn't it, for people to replace something with rather than dealing. So when did you
1: recognize that you were doing those things? I mean, when was the aha moment for you? You know, it's really funny when I left treatment, I wasn't, I was probably one of the only girls in treatment when they would weigh us weekly and I would be like, yes, I'm gaining weight because <laughs> everybody else is mm-hmm. like, Oh, I'm gaining weight. And I was already super thin when I walked into the facility. Um, what for me, the, the substitutions that I made were, you know, I got out of treatment. I, we would go to meetings. I would smoke. I would smoke more. Um, I, w- I started to use food to deal with those feelings. And it took me a couple of years to realize that I'm just substituting one addiction for another. Right. And Sometimes I think what we do, what I did, and not what we, but what I did was I thought, well, you know, food isn't as bad as drugs and alcohol, or smoking a cigarette isn't as bad as doing, you know, drinking all night. So I kind of used that as a justification and a rationalization. And when my when my food addiction kind of started to take off after our son came to live with us, that's another story of our lives. Um, I found that food became an easy way because I had stopped smoking. Food became an easy way to avoid my feelings because it's easy to say, well, I don't want to waste the food. You know, he's not going to eat it, so I better eat it. And it was just easier just to eat even mindlessly. And I think throughout my life and throughout my journey, I have found that when there are stressful situations, when there are life things happening, I find that it's easy to revert to eating too much or not eating at all. So I actually vacillate between both of those extremes. Like when my first husband, Dan got sick at the last illness that we, that we walked through together, we both stopped eating. We ate popsicles and ice. We ate popsicles and candy bars. And that's all we ate. And I, again, dropped a whole bunch of weight because the stress. And then when he did finally pass, that was like, food was like the last thing on my mind. So again, it's all, and, and I think it's all about, you know how do you cope with stress how did I cope with stress and sometimes it's food sometimes it's not food it always it's in it's but it's always the, the good thing is that I, I know that's what I'm doing so I think it's um I think that, right, I think
0: that's probably important that you recognize that that's probably one of the important things that you do recognize that or you really I I know that I've talked to people that they don't think they have a food addiction and, um, you know, I think denial is one of whether it be drug addiction or whether it be food addiction, denial is one of the, you know, one of the biggest enemies is you, you, you have to admit it first, right?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So how much, I know right after recovery or yeah, right after your, um, rehab, you know, your husband, uh, passed away shortly after, but how much weight did you gain after, you got out of rehab.
1: So after rehab, I, um I probably got my heaviest. I, I think when I was in rehab, it was under a hundred pounds, which wasn't good. After rehab, I think I got to like 130, 140 for me, which I thought was really heavy. And then when he got sick, that was I mean, I probably lost that. I probably lost 30 pounds in just a couple right. of months. And then when I got into my my current marriage and we Um, took on the responsibility of raising my nephew, I went from probably 120 to 170. I was in a very difficult job um, and just was eating. I just used sugar. It was like I just started using sugar every day. It was just like, let's just eat candy. Let's just eat candy and got up to 170. And that's when I just, oh, I was probably the most miserable. I never felt that awful about myself in my life except for when I was using drugs. I had felt like I was in that same, similar situation.
0: So. So I do have a question. Um, Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Lori. I do have a question. So after rehab, they said it was, or during rehab, they said it was okay for you to smoke?
1: You know, back in the day, you could smoke in rehab. You could smoke and they had coffee too. They don't do that today. It's very, very different today.
0: That's what I was thinking because really, you know, I I mean, smoking is just another, uh, another drug and and coffee is too. And I I get it, you know, believe me, I have my coffee every morning, but, um, you know, um, I, 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 that's what I thought. I thought they kind of made you take all drugs out, including smoking. I didn't know they'd stop with caffeine too now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Back in the day, back in 1980 in the 80s, you could smoke in rehab. That wasn't an issue. Even the staff could smoke. And what's crazy, I quit smoking. I've quit smoking five times in my lifetime. I started smoking cigarettes when I was 18. Oh, no, I lied. I started. I smoked for 18 years. I started smoking when I was 12. And when my son turned 12, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I started smoking, right. using drugs at 12. Right. And I looked at him and went, what was I thinking? Of course, I wasn't but in the 80s you could smoke in treatment and when i went to work in that treatment facility i thought they told me in the interview you can't smoke so i quit smoking to go to the training program to get this job right this whole year i was like i was so excited i was going to become a counselor i was going to quit smoking and everything was going to be great and stopping smoking did also help me gain weight <laughs> because yeah, that for Nicotine is such a very powerful drug. And I stopped smoking. But when I got there, all the other counselors were smoking. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? You're not supposed to be smoking. And they're like, you can smoke. What do you mean you're not supposed to be smoking? I'm like, I, they told me I can't smoke. Well, apparently I misunderstood them. But that was good because I didn't smoke. And it felt great. For about four years, I had been smoke-free. And then When Dan got really sick, my first husband got really sick towards the end of his life, he started smoking and he and I didn't smoke together when we got into recovery, but we both had stopped. Um, And I'd stopped again again for that reason too. Um, And I I take that back. I'd quit smoking for about two, two and a half years, Um, but he had stopped smoking as well. And he had started again and he was trying to sneak it from me. And I was like, I can smell this. Why are you smoking? He's like, well, I didn't have cancer when I was smoking before. And I was like, I wanted to say something dumb, like, well, you know, it's going to kill you. And I was like, oh, eat your words, Lori," because he was already sick with cancer. And I was like, oh, kicks, you know, foot in mouth, right? Ah, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. So.
0: No, that's good. Um, So now that, you know, when you and I were kids, you know, when we were teenagers, marijuana was illegal. And so it was more taboo. And. Um, Now that it's legal, even though it's not legal for teenagers, a lot of them do it because, you know, they say it's legal now. So um, and a lot of them want to deny that it's a gateway drug. And it seems like your description of alcohol to cigarettes to marijuana to harder drugs, it seems like there was a progression there. Can you talk about marijuana
1: being a gateway drug and what you think about that? I would love to because I believe that. You know, when I look back at my journey and when I have been in, when I have been as a therapist, you always get a, you always get a drug, a drug history, right? You always ask, what was the first thing you did? What was the first drug? How old were you when you started? And almost every single person that I ever talked to, it started with smoking cigarettes, you know, not a big deal. And then maybe a little alcohol and marijuana and when marijuana opens when i believe that when you open the door to marijuana specifically very specifically what happens is your ability to make decisions is changed your the, the what it does to your brain and your and your thought process is very similar alcohol i believe is also a gateway drug but marijuana has a tendency like when you're high and under the influence you don't care it's like yeah i'll try anything your your, your ability to make re, to be reasonable is very limited. Um, And I really believe that for me, that's what happened. I didn't drink alcohol a lot when I was 12, but I did smoke cigarettes and I did smoke pot because those were the things, again, those are the things we could get our hands on as kids. You could, I could buy cigarettes when I was 12 and 13 years old, which today you can't. And we could get pot from, you know, our, our high school, our friend's high school brothers or whoever. You know, but drinking was a little bit harder because you had to have somebody that was 21. But That's right. But getting a hold of marijuana was super easy, and smoking was super simple. Those were super easy drugs to get your hands on.
0: Yeah. Well, you you bring up a good point on, um, you know, when you're under the influence of drugs. Um, Alcohol is a perfect example. Um, I know when people are trying to lose weight, and we get, you know, we often— get calls or we counsel people on people that are trying to lose weight. And one of the things I tell them is they, they, they've got to cut out alcohol. If you're really serious about losing weight, you got to cut out alcohol completely, at least during your weight loss phase. And one of the reasons why is not just because alcohol is empty calories and it, and it's, you know, literally alcohol is literally a poison and it makes it harder for your body to recover, but you make dumb decisions when you are under the influence of drugs. And that includes food decisions. Um, You look at people that are on, you know, pretty strict diets or trying to lose weight and all of a sudden they drink one night and next thing you know, they eat horribly that night. And then, you know, and, and, and then the cycle continues. So, and, you know, marijuana would be probably no different. It's just, um, you make bad decisions and then it's even worse than food. Like you say, Oh, well, maybe cocaine's okay. I'm high right now on marijuana,
1: so maybe some cocaine's okay. And I'm assuming that's how it progresses a lot of times. Yep, exactly. And that's usually exactly what happens. And that's, that is when I look back at my history, that's exactly what happened is every time I was under the influence of a drug, it was easier to be not scared of another one. It was like, oh, you guys are all doing I- it. I'll do it with you because, number one, I want to fit in. And the other thing is I'm already under the influence and I'm not afraid. I, I become bulletproof. And I think a lot of us think we're bulletproof when we're under the influence of alcohol or other substances that create the uh, inability to be rational. And right. I, I got to tell you, I've been out of the treatment field for a long time. I have my I, I left the chemical dependency field back in 19, I believe, 90 or no, I'm sorry, 2001. I believe I've been out for quite some time now. Um, actually, I actually can't even do math. It's actually even longer than that. Anyway, don't quote me on any of these. I haven't been, I've, been, I've been a personal trainer for almost 17 years. So 17 years ago, I was still a chemical dependency counselor. Um, but there's some things that happen literally to your brain that I can't tell you what those are anymore. I just know that your brain cannot make the decisions, your frontal lobe, your, all of that stuff is yep. your decision-making center. Toast, Toast. Absolutely. absolutely. So. Well, Lori, as we wrap this
0: podcast up, I really enjoy you sharing your story, and I you shared a little bit of your um, husband's um, cancer journey with us today, and I, I, we're going to hear more about that in part three of your interview next week. And, you know, all this all, all this has to do with health. So, first of all, we talked about on part one, we talked about your weight loss journey into a personal trainer and gym and all that. And this second um, one, we talked about your addiction recovery, because that's all about your health. And next week we're going to talk about when your husband got cancer and how that affected your health because relationships are very important and what goes on around us is very important how we react to it is very important and i'm sure you had a lot of struggles you shared it you shared some of those with us already during that cancer but um you know i'm super excited to to um hear the rest of that story
1: next week so thank you for sharing today absolutely thank you i appreciate you asking me i love sharing and if there's anything i can share that helps other people, that to me is the gift of, of what I do is sharing my story. Others can know they're not alone. No Absolutely. one. Can and that's Absolutely. the thing that I really think is important is that if you're going through a struggle, please reach out to somebody that can support you through that. And if I'm that person, by all means, reach out. I love to help people. Awesome. Well, Lori, how do people get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me. I, you gave out your cell phone number. I'm thinking, what do you think, Sean? Should I get on my cell phone? <laughs> that actually,
0: that actually, out of I'm just gonna um, be honest. That's not my cell phone number, but it forwards to my cell phone. So, gotcha. <laughs> but the notification is not on, so it, I'll only get it after I, I only get it when I want to get it. So,
1: gotcha. So, <laughs> yeah. if people, people want to reach out to me, they're more than welcome to find me on Facebook and put and private message me. I. I look at my private messages and if I'm not friends with you, I still will read your messages and I'm always in that again, Lori Powell. And it's got a picture of me and my cute husband and anybody that needs support or needs suggestions, please don't hesitate. I'm here to help. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story today, Lori. All
0: right. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, tune in, listeners and viewers. Tune in Monday for her part three on her husband's cancer journey and how it affected her health. So Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, 1230 to 130 next Monday. Thank you for listening and watching.